it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 284. Today, we're going to answer three great listener questions we got recently. And the first one we're going to have a little fun with. So the first one is actually in Portuguese. And for those of you who are unaware, my fiance is Portuguese. She's Brazilian. And I've been attempting, air quote, attempting to learn Portuguese for the last three years now. So unfortunately, I'm going to practice a little bit more with you guys here on the air. So bear with me, hold your ears and maybe hold your nose. And for those of you who are fluent in Portuguese, I apologize in advance. So here we go. Pessoas com menos de 18 anos podem investir. como e onde? And this is from Nadia. So what that means for those of you who not speak Portuguese, it means it, it's asking if people under 18 can invest and if yes, how and where. So, Andrew, would you like to go ahead and take the first stab at answering Nadia's great question? Thank you for sending it in and let me practice on you guys for a moment or two. Bravo. I mean, as somebody who speaks zero Portuguese, that sounded (laughs) perfectly fluent to me. (laughs) To answer the question, if you're in the United States, you do have to get a specific brokerage account that you can have your parent or guardian open for you. So I'm actually going to leave the specifics of that to Dave because he knows the acronym and I don't, but that's kind of the gist of it. You can get it open as long as you have a parent or guardian do it for you. And then when you turn 18, they can transfer that account to you and then it's yours. Yep, exactly. So in the in the banking world, it's called an UPMA, which means Uniform Transfer for a Minor. I don't remember the exact acronym, so don't hold me to that. But basically what it means is it's an account that a minor can hold with a parent or somebody of, of legal guardianship that's above the age of 18. And when that child turns 18, they have a choice. They can either have it transferred to them solely or they can close the account, cash out the account and be on their way. So it really kind of depends on what it is and how they want to do things, but it's a fantastic way 
for children or anybody under 18 to start learning investing. And they can do it with their parent helping them guide them, uh, especially if it's somebody that knows something about investing and whatnot. So it's a great vehicle. You can do it through your bank. So you can do utmas with savings accounts. You can do them with CDs, but you can also do them with brokerage accounts. So you can do it either through your bank or you can do it through a brokerage firm like Fidelity or Schwab. So either one of them can help you with that as well. And it's super easy to do. And it's really no different than opening any other account. And we actually had, we had Seamus Medan join us a while back. I think it was a couple of years ago. And he actually at the time was under 18 and that's what he, his dad had done for him. And that's how he learned investing. And he really took a passion to it and, and has really gone on, is going on to do a lot of great things in the investing space as well as uh, BC and, and all that kind of stuff. So really great guy. So it's a fantastic vehicle to help get your kids started if that's something you want to do. If you're under 18, unfortunately, you're going to have to wait till you're 18 or find somebody to help you with it. Imagine the compounding you could get started at 16 or 14. Yeah, not to right. that, you know, not to mention when you're 18 and you've had four years picking stocks. I think mm-hmm. you'll, be, you'll be pretty good at that point. The oh, compounding yeah, yeah. is like ridiculous if you run the numbers oh yeah yeah exactly it's it's yeah it's it's amazing my one of my good friends her daughter is a freshman in college and they did this for her when she was 14 and she was able to with the money that she saved working in summer during the summers as a lifeguard and then during school she was able to save up enough money to help pay for her tuition for her first year of college so it was awesome and she learned a lot too that is amazing. All right. So let's uh, let's move on to the next question. Don't worry. This one will be in English. So here we go. Hi, guys. Love the podcast and help you guys provide. I've got a question on compounding. Does compounding only happen when investing consistently in the same stocks slash ETFs? For instance, if I'm investing in a new stock each month, am I really going to experience the benefits of compounding interest as over time I'm not really increasing the amount of shares I have in that stock? Rather, I'm choosing to invest in a new stock each month instead. I hope that makes sense. I'm a listener from the UK and love the show. Thanks, guys. So, Andrew, I'm going to let you take the first stab at this great question. Sure. So the way I understand the question is basically, you know, do I get more compounding, more compound interest from a big pile of money or little piles of money? Because it does make sense with compound interest, the more money you have, the more money it earns. So it would sound like the bigger pile of money would compound more than the smaller piles of money. But it really doesn't matter how you break it up. You will still get the same force of compounding because all that compounding really is, is your money making more money. And the more of that money that you have, the more you will make and the more that will accelerate. But it doesn't matter if that pile's all in one pile or if you have 10 piles, that if you were to combine into one pile, it's the same. But because you split into 10 piles, that doesn't slow it down in any way. So you know, if we had a hundred dollars in each pile, say twenty piles of a hundred dollars in each pile made ten dollars, that's the same as having all of those in the single pile and it making, let's say, ten percent or twenty percent on there. So I know that's something that's maybe something that could trip you up as a beginner, but just keep it in mind that because it all adds up to your own personal wealth, you're going to get that compounding. And it's those little returns that you get add up over time, regardless of whether you start small or you start big. And maybe that's the biggest takeaway because the multiplication's there. Yeah. It's just, it, I think time is the, the biggest factor there. The biggest impactor. So basically 
when you look at a, a portfolio, let's say take Warren Buffett's, if you look at his portfolio, just because Apple is the biggest portion of his portfolio doesn't mean that the portfolio is going to grow faster because that's a bigger portion. No. What do you mean? I guess I'm not making it clear. He has 150 million or 150 billion in assets that he's investing. It doesn't matter what the concentration of the individual companies. It's a matter of what the 150 is going to compound on the 150, irregardless of how it's broken up. Correct. Yeah. If we assume everything returns the same. Right. Which, okay. yeah, that's a good thing to bring up is like, obviously the different piles might grow at different rates. Mm-hmm. And that's why we recommend diversifying and splitting it up into different piles because you don't know which one's going to grow faster than the other. Right. But if you did have two piles versus four piles, the bigger piles, if they all grow at the same rate, the bigger one's not going to necessarily grow any faster because right. when you add up all your growth from the little piles, it adds up to what it would have been in a big pile. But yeah, that's a good clarification. Yeah. So I guess the biggest takeaway is continue to invest. It's more about time in the market than timing the market and being consistent and putting money. You don't have to you don't have to concentrate into just two stocks to get the benefits of divert, you know, of compounding. It's gonna compound irregardless. Yeah, it's going to compound irregardless, and you're not handicapping yourself by picking a new stock each month. It's not like you're slowing down that process. If anything, I think that's great diversification to have a new stock every month. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? 
a hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, let's move on to the last question. So we have, hello, Andrew. Sadly, my father is going to be departing from us soon and will be leaving a substantial amount of invested cash to his children slash stocks. I have been a long-term listener for your podcast, so I have heard so much about the end goal of being financially free. My question for both of you is, if you had the opportunity to be debt-free, would you invest that cash to settle the debt or continue to invest long-term to maximize the long-term benefits of compounding interest of the market? Thank you so much for the work that you do, James. So obviously, James, we're very sorry to hear about your father. And we don't wish that on anybody. And that must be a very, very difficult time to be going through. And we appreciate you we, uh, reaching out to us to to ask us this sensitive question. So, Andrew, I'm going to let you take the first stab at, at answering James' question. Yeah. Again, my condolences, James. That's really tough. When it comes to having a big pile of money and what do you do with it from an investment standpoint, I think there's... There's like strong, there's strong opinions on either side of the aisle, if you will, about what you should do with it. So there are some people who are very anti debt and they think you should pay off debt and become debt free as soon as you can. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotional benefit to being debt free. And even if it's not optimal, there's a lot of emotional benefit to being debt free. There is also the other camp that says, well, look at your, interest rate. So if you have credit card debt, that's 20% interest rate, pay all of that off. But then if you have like, let's say student loan debt, that's 4% interest rate, but you could probably make 10% by putting it in the market. So don't pay off the 4% rate, pay off the credit card rate and then invest the rest in the market. And then you have, you know, guys like, like me sometimes who think, you know, I could do anything in the market and might as well put all of it in there. So it's hard because we don't know like what kind of debt James has. We don't know what his personal situation is. And, and, you know, I don't know at what stage of beginner you are. And I think that plays a big role too, because mm-hmm. if you've been in the market for like two months and all of a sudden you have more money than you've ever had and you put that into the market, be prepared to be on the biggest, most scary roller coaster of your life if you've ever been on. I'm a huge proponent of when you get a big pile of money and you know whether we're talking about like a 401k rollover or could be an inheritance I'm a big fan of splitting that up over let's say 10 months or 20 months and just doing kind of like the last question a new stock every month or even just an index fund if you want to stay safe and diversified from the onset, because when it's such a big pile of money compared to what else you will be investing later on, the emotional drag of that can be really, really extreme. And so it's hard to tell somebody who just started investing two months ago, oh yeah, put it all into the market and you'll be fine. I know there are studies and the numbers dictate that that's actually the best move to put your money in as soon as possible. But we're talking about the real world, not hypothetical numbers here. And so for me, I think an investor needs to do what they can to stay in the game while also pushing the ball down the field. And I think splitting up money, if it's assuming it's going to go into the market, splitting up that money and dollar cost averaging it so that you can ride through multiple short-term cycles, I think is a really great way to go about it. That's what I would do if I got a big pile of cash tomorrow. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I would do too. And the book tells you to pay off the debt. That's what the book says. Whose book is that? What's that? <laughs> Whose book? <laughs> well, yeah. Whose book? If you go on the internet and you look up, you know, what do I do? Do I pay off debt first or do I put money in the market? Most people are going to tell you to pay off the debt first. And, but Andrew pointed out a good, a very good point. And this is actually something that I learned when I was in the bank. It look at what the interest rates are that you have. Like, obviously, like you said, if you have credit card debt, that's 20, 25, 30% because the rates have gone up so much. You know, if you can invest at better at higher rates than that, then you should be doing the investing for bigger years podcast show. The likelihood of that is less likely, let's say. So, you know, paying off that kind of debt would make a lot of sense. But the flip side of that, like Andrew said, if you have a mortgage that's 4%, you could likely do better than that. And so you could consider putting some of that money in the market in that way. And depending on how you invest, and like Andrew said, whether you're new to this, whether you're experienced, whether you're a stock picker or whether you're an index fund investor, there's lots of different options that you can choose all this. But one of the mortgage bankers that I work with at Wells Fargo said to me one time that he said that he recommends to people. And now this is a gentleman who had been in the banking industry for 30 years. And his advice to clients was if you have a lump sum of money, put it in the market because paying off your mortgage is only a three or 4% reduction in your rates. And that money is not going to change. You're going to keep paying that for a very long period of time. And the, the 10 years that you could maybe take off of your mortgage, not paying the whole thing off, for example, that 10 years, you could be compounding at 10%, buying the S&P 500, for example, and that would be a better return for you than paying off a portion of your mortgage, for example. He said that you know the, the, the calculus, the numbers change. Let's say that you can pay off the mortgage then. You, know, there's, you might want to consider that. But his advice was if you cannot pay off the mortgage and you have a lump sum of money, is to look at what rate you're paying and, and calculate, will I get a better return if I put it in the market for 10 years than paying off 10 years of my mortgage. And I could see the logic with it. And I, I remember talking to the financial advisor at the branch about that very question. And he agreed. He said that that was probably a really smart way to go about doing it. So again, it depends on what your debt situation is, James. And who, you know what when you're talking about being debt-free, we don't really know what that is. So it hamstrings us a bit on answering the question as well. And I guess the other part of it too is what's going to help you sleep best at night? Is investing all the money going to help you sleep best at night? Is paying off your debt going to help you? Or is it following in what your father's wishes were? You know, that's something to consider as well. And depending on your relationship with your father and what he wanted to do, and maybe that's something that if you have children, you could roll that into something for them. And so those are, I mean, that you have a, a lot of options to think about what it is you want to do. And the other thing you probably have to think about too is the tax situation. We don't know what the tax situation is. And so before you pull the trigger on anything, please consult an, an accountant to see what kind of ramifications or what the situation is with that. Cause there probably is some sort of tax implication. If it, if all that money is in the stock and you have to liquidate it to take possession of it or even to take possession of the stock itself, I'm not entirely sure how that transfer would happen. There might be some tax you know, implications either now or down the future that you need to plan for and think about. And then I guess the last part of it that I think about, and this is something Andrew has talked about many times in the show, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. If you're going to take a lump sum of money 
and put it into the market. I know that the math and some of the studies say that that's a good way to go. I will push back and say, find me 20 great investments to put it in today. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. And I'm not talking about like once. I'm not talking about, you know, hey, I want to buy this, this, and this. I'm talking about great investments from now until the next day with and going from standing zero to picking these 20 companies overnight. That's a really, really tough, tall challenge to do. And Warren Buffett could probably do it, but he has enough money to do that and he doesn't. So I think that should tell you something that he's not out buying 20 things every month. There aren't always a lot of great opportunities. There may be periods where there are, but there isn't. And so I guess I lean way more towards what Andrew is suggesting of using it and putting chunks in at a time because it gives you more time to think about what it is you want to invest in, different kinds of allocations you can find, different companies you can find. It also gives you more experience. And like Andrew said, that if you put that whole lump sum in and you are not an experienced investor, you're going to have a lot of heartburn. <laughs> you might want to buy a lot of Tums, a lot, a lot of Tums, because every day you look at that balance and it's a lot lower than it was the day before because of something that happened in the market. That's not easy to deal with. And uh, it's part of the game. And so the, I guess all those things to say, I would follow a lot of the advice that Andrew was talking about. You know, Think about what your heart tells you, what can you sleep with, and what do you think your father would want you to do? And just kind of go from there and you'll figure out the right decisions from there. Yeah, that was so good. I love all the nuance behind that because there is a lot of factors and it's not as easy as just go out and buy Microsoft tomorrow. No, um, <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> maybe can you describe, you know, obviously inheritance and, you know, we're not trying to open up a tax law book or anything, but can you like give some examples to somebody who's not aware even that investments are taxed like what kind of thing could come up because i you know i feel like we talk a lot to people building a portfolio mm -hmm. and you don't really need a financial advisor or somebody to look at your taxes when you're first building a portfolio but when you come across let's say a hundred thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars or million dollars you might want to seriously consider talking to a professional about the tax implications to your point, because that could pay off tens of thousands of dollars. And we're talking about something that's very specific, like an inheritance. Mm -hmm. So can you speak on like some of the typical taxes that maybe a beginner wouldn't even realize is involved with a big lump sum of money? Yeah, well, I guess a few things that kind of spring to mind. First one is what kind of inheritance tax would be assigned to this and how would that be assigned to that? Depending on the, the amount of money that you're receiving, you could have to pay something now when you liquidate the stocks. When you sell stocks, depending on what kind of account they're in, you may be responsible for taxes. And you will, and chances are you will be responsible for taxes. It just depends on how much. You know, there's the difference between the short term and the long term gains that you could be taxed on, and those rates are different. And basically, in a very simplified way, you know, the short term are going to be taxed at a higher rate, which means that those are monies that you would gain on in less than a year. And then long-term gains are anything that you hold past that year holding period and you'll pay some taxes. Now, if you're in, if you're in a Roth IRA, then you've already paid your taxes. And so you, that part of it is easier, but if you're in a traditional, you haven't. And so then you have to figure out what kind of taxes are owed. 
And when the money is being liquidated or transferred to you, you that may be assigned as income to you. And then all of a sudden that puts you in a way higher tax bracket. Let's, yeah. you know, let's say that it is a million dollars, just hypothetical, you know, that puts you in a way higher tax bracket than, you know, I would be in right now. And so before I could do anything, I'd have to talk to an accountant and find out what kind of taxes am I going to owe for this? And when am I going to owe those? It may be on transfer of the funds, or it may be when I retire. It just depends on what kind of tax vehicle you put it in and how you want to invest that. And so those are some just initial things that I can think of. And then, you know, depending on if it's in a trust or not a trust, there will be taxes associated with that. Uh, bottom line is um, Uncle Sam's going to come for his cut in one way, shape or form. And it's just a good idea to try to be, I guess, prepared as much as you can for stuff like that. And those are things that, you know, you may think, hey, great, I got all this money. It's all in the stock market. I can just sell all my Microsoft and just take all my money. It, it, not quite always that simple. There's going to be Uncle Sam's going to be standing there for for a little bit of a handout. And you just got to figure out what what is what your responsibility is and how you can try to lessen that legally. I would always, always, you know, whether it's $10,000 or $10 million, I would talk to an accountant and figure out what it is you need to do in regards to all that. So is there anything I missed or anything you'd like to add that I didn't touch? I think they're all good points and, and good things for people to think about. I mean, to your point, like if you have a, a stock and like, let's say you did get left Microsoft and you wanted to sell, which would be crazy. I'd have to come across the mic and like flap some Smack sense me. into you. Let's say you did because you liked a different company instead. To your point, do not just put all of the Microsoft money into the next stock because that tax bill will still come due even if you didn't set that money aside. Mm-hmm. That's a great example for a beginner to think about. <laughs> Another one would be, let's say you did keep the stock, but then you're paid dividends. And if you were just reinvesting those dividends without holding some of that back for taxes, you're going to owe that during tax time too. Mm-hmm. So it does pay off. And I, I would say the the more money it is involved, probably the more ROI you get from talking to a professional mm-hmm. on the tax side of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess the last thing I, I want to throw out there is the two main retirement vehicles, the, the Roth IRA and the traditional IRA have different tax, not loopholes, but they have tax restrictions. They also have restrictions on when you can take the money out. And so the traditional, for example, you, if you take that money out, let's say that you take, you take a lump sum and you put it in a traditional IRA and then something comes along in five years that you want to take some of the money out and go buy a car, for example, just as an example, you're going to get taxed pretty heavily on taking that money out. I think it's around 25, 27%, but don't hold my feet to the fire on that. And that's a big chunk of change to get because you're taking out before the the required time with a traditional IRA, that money is basically being held in that account until you are, till you retire, officially retire and start taking required minimum distributions. That's what they're called RMDs. And by the time you get to be, I think it's 72, you have to start taking those. But prior to that, you can take what you want, but there's a certain amount. And anyway, it's, it's, it can be a little complicated, but there are tax implications for all that because you haven't paid taxes on that money when you first put it in that account. Whereas the Roth IRA, you've already been taxed on that money. And I believe it's after five years, you can withdraw the money without being taxed on the money because it's yours. 
or if you're going to buy a home, the you know, first time home, you can take it out at any time without any tax penalties, I believe. So we're talking about now the other side of yes. putting the money somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So there's, yeah, to your point, there's tax implications on both. Yeah, there's going to be some things you're going to have to think about tax-wise when you take the possession of the money. And right. then there's also going to be tax implications or things you got to think through when you once you have possession and you start investing it in one way, shape, or form. You got to think about kind of both sides of the coin, I guess, is what I was trying to say. Maybe, yeah. not, as, maybe not as clearly as I, I wanted to. <laughs> I think we could all give you some leeway there. Uh, that's all really <laughs> great stuff. I guess the last kind of question would be if somebody's in that kind of $10,000-ish range or maybe it doesn't make much sense to talk to a professional, where can they learn more about the basics of investing taxes and stuff like that, that kind of make it more simpler. Our website. <laughs> yeah. Einvestingforbeginners.com is a great place to go. I would go to, I would frankly go to someplace like H&R Block, or I'd also go to irs.gov and look on those two places. Those are great websites as well that will have lots of information that you can read for free and you can learn more about the the opportunities for different IRAs, if that's the route you want to go, and what kinds of things you may have to consider or think about in, in relation to any sort of taxes. Again, if it starts getting into things like trusts and anything of that nature, I would probably want to talk, at least talk to a professional. Um, you don't have to pay somebody right away to do that. You can just go for a consultation and they'll, most of them will do the, that kind of stuff for free because they want your business and they want to give you advice. And so you can just try to find somebody and see if that's something that, that could help you. I think it was the um, <laughs> IFB 60 through IFB 64. Okay. We have a, like a personal finance series we did back then. And we kind of talked about getting started with thinking about when you're building your investments and how mm -hmm. that like the basics of the tax and some of the, the IRA stuff that you were mentioning. Um, so you can kind of go through that series and get a good, I think brain dump kind of background knowledge that should help you go far when you're thinking about, okay, this, these are how to set my expectations for taxes with investments. So I would recommend IFB 60 and then kind of move up from there. Yeah, that sounds great. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, those are, I think all those resources would be very helpful. And again, you know, I hate to keep beating a dead horse, but I will again, you know, if you have questions, you can reach out to us. If there's something that we don't know, we're not tax professionals. So just keep that in mind. I would definitely strongly encourage you to just talk to the person that does your, your taxes for you. A lot of these questions are things that they could probably answer at a, at least an intermediate or beginner level. And if it's anything more complicated than that, they'll either want to take you on retainer or they will recommend you to somebody else that maybe specializes in, in these particular questions. Because some of these things may be very specific and you may have to work a professional that works with these situations on a regular basis. All right. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up the show for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a review. It greatly helps our show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials we've created for you at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, consider growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our show. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market 
shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.